Hey team, it's Matt Drinkon here. And you might have heard, my brand new book releases on Amazon on March 8th. It's been a labor of love that I think can really help you navigate some of the challenges you're experiencing in your own life. I go over toxic positivity and how to think you're in it for everyone else. In reality, you're in it for yourself. And I express that through this entire book and help learn from our own mistakes and how to turn the lens on ourselves and ask good questions. So go to Amazon on March 8th and you can get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. That's it for me. Let's get into today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Eternal Optimist podcast. I'm your host, Matt Drinkon, and I'm here today with already someone I know that you're going to love. I have such high expectations for this conversation just because I went down the rabbit hole deep today in studying and researching this guest, Mr. Laban Ditchburn, and it's a name you will always remember, Laban Ditchburn. And then to hear his story, just to see it online and to have the privilege to chat with him today, we're in for a real treat. So after having built him up like this, I know it's gonna deliver because this is what he does. So I'd like to introduce our guest today, Mr. Laban Ditchford. Laban, welcome to the show, sir. Matt Drinkown, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. It's a real pleasure to be with you. So where are you today physically? Where are you located today as we speak? This is being broadcast out of a semi-long-term Airbnb in the suburb of Laureles in Medellin in Colombia, where my wife and I have decided to put down roots temporarily because we've been on the road for two and a bit years now. Just when we think we've got something permanent, the universe comes along and says, i got some other place I need you to be right now. So don't get me wrong. If anyone hasn't been here, the weather here is literally perfect every single day. People are amazing. The food's great. And it's super green and super hilly. And yeah, what a great spot. It's like a little bit of paradise over there in Colombia. So let's just go ahead and dive in. You know, we like to ask the hard stuff and the deep questions first. And, and one of the things that I found about you and researching you is that you have been mobile now for the past at least two and a half plus years. And I'm curious, can you tell us a little story about why you decided to start to live this lifestyle and be mobile if you could just take us there, what happened and, and why did you choose this lifestyle for the past uh, two and a half years, Laban? Do you mind if I share something personal, like really super personal? 100%. We're all ears, sir. It's really important in the context of why we're doing what we're doing now. My wife and I have been together just over five years. We got married uh, a year and a half ago, give or take. And before we started filming this, I said to you, you can ask me anything you want as long as you're happy to hear the answer. And that was the exact same line that I gave my wife when we first got together because I've lived a life. If you imagine Charlie Sheen and Fair and Loathing in Las Vegas made a baby, that might be me. And she took me up on that, Matt, and I had to reveal some things about myself that I really didn't want to. And from that experience, which was very challenging at the time, we got over those things and it created this incredible bond of trust between us. And a year later, Anna revealed to me about some significant childhood sexual abuse that took place from her stepfather growing up in Russia. And I was the second person in 20-something years that she told that to. It was a school friend was the first person. Nothing happened. And that kick-started a healing journey for her. And in September of 2021, we were living in Melbourne, Australia. 
which for anyone that was following the lockdown stuff, was one of the most lockdown cities in the world at the time. And she finally had the confidence and had done enough healing to tell her mother what had happened. And her mother received that information for the first time with beautiful open arms and turned into a real mama bear. She went to the police in in Russia and the Russian police subpoenaed Anna to Russia. She needed to be there within seven days. And because of the state of the lockdowns in Australia at the time, the Australian government, even as Anna, who's an Australian citizen, had to get a permit to leave the country. Given all the information, the Australian government rejected the first application for Anna to leave Australia, deeming it not good enough a reason. The second one was approved and she flew out. And because we weren't married at the time and getting a visa can be quite an arduous process to Russia, I was left behind. I eventually got out a few weeks later, thanks to my publisher and her husband, who was a lawyer that drafted a letter demanding I be made available to the Frankfurt Bookmesser in Germany. And the conditions of leaving the country from the Australian government were that you had to be out of the country for 12 weeks or three months. And when you did come back, you had to go into a quarantine camp for 14 days at a cost of about $4,500. So when we got out, we realized just how oppressive the, the situation was in Australia. And I said to Anna, let's not go back. And coincidentally, we had already packed up the house because we had been planning to move from the state of Victoria to Queensland, which like the Florida of Australia, for those who don't know, and a lot more open and free. And my younger brother and his family live up there and I'm very close with. So we had everything in a 20-foot container. And I said, let's not go back because of our decisions around vaccines and not getting it with whatever your opinion on that is. We weren't allowed to travel to anywhere. And the only country that would welcome us was Mexico. So we reunited in Cancun seven weeks later to this incredible reunion, as I'm sure you can imagine, after never having really spent more than a few hours apart, and made a life in Mexico and played El Carmen and then have been traveling mainly to the US. And then last year, we spent three months of our trip in India. We spent six months in the United States, and then we've been in Colombia for two and a half months now. That's the background. (laughs) Here's the story. Man, so much depth. Was not prepared to hear that part of the story. So thank you for going deep. I'm happy to hear it. Pretty heavy stuff. Yeah. Just let that sink in, audience. This is where we're starting the conversation. So as Laban had mentioned, there may have been uh, kind of a, a Charlie Sheen slash fear and loathing lifestyle that may have been like in a past life. So I'd love to go back to that, Laban, uh, if you could, and tell us a little bit about uh, your challenges with addiction and where you were in that stage of your life. Please paint the picture for us. Yeah, I'm a child of divorce. Three and a half years, mum and dad split up, very dysfunctional breakup, the opposite of what you would hope during any separation or unconscious uncoupling or conscious uncoupling, if you quote Gwyneth Paltrow and the guy from Coldplay, Chris Martin. The kids we used as leverage. I got two brothers, one older, one younger, and uh, there was custody battles and foster home visits and parents that were already very broken long before they got together and were doing the best they could. But from a parenting point of view, probably a D minus. And that created this desire to want to escape for me. And when I was young, it was TV and movies and then computer games. And I'm telling a a story that people have probably heard a thousand times before, but it it just how it happened. Left unchecked when I got to my mid-teens, I started drinking, gambling became my main vice and then recreational drug use. 
and I was high-functioning the entire time. So on the surface of it, I had big social circles. I would go out of my way to, to wish people happy birthday on Facebook and be the class clown and seek validation through doing stupid stuff. And it culminated when I was 35, when I ground along the floor of rock bottom and reached out for help and started this healing journey that I've been on. And I'm very proud to, to share that it's more than seven years since I touched a drop of alcohol, eight plus years for gambling, recreational drug use, limiting beliefs, negative self-talk, philandering. I'm happily married in a monogamous relationship to a stunning Russian and Japanese belter. And life's just getting better and better. Man, thank you for sharing that. I know a number of people on the show that have talked about addiction, and I appreciate you sharing that part of the journey. How did you do it? How did you finally consciously make that decision at the age of 35 to stop with that lifestyle? An epiphanous moment, you'd probably call it, Matt. I was drunk with about three bottles of appropriately priced Pinot Noir coursing its way through my veins at about midnight, and I had my laptop open, and I was gambling on a horse race in Hong Kong which I wasn't even watching on television. I was just using F5 to refresh the page to see whether I'd won or lost. Real pathological, degenerate kind of behavior. And in the bottom left-hand corner of the screen was a phone number that I had never, ever seen before. And I didn't even really think about it. I just called the number and it was for the gambler's helpline. And this incredible woman answered the phone whose last name I'll never know, but her first name was Mary. So she was my Mary Magdalene guardian angel, whether she liked it or not. And she listened to me for the first time without judgment. I had never experienced that feeling before and gave me the freedom to share vulnerably. And then when I eventually shut up, she shared with me some cold, hard reality facts around how gamblers experience suicide at rates far higher than any other addictive behavior. And it's to, to do with how fast you lose everything. And that was what I, I was approaching that precipice. She put me in touch with a gambling psychologist by the name of Lee, this lady who worked for the Salvation Army. And it was funded by taxes from gambling losses. So I got a year and a half of that for free, which balanced out a good chunk of the, the lost money. And in that 18 months, I started learning and understanding why I was doing what I was doing. And then I just went absolutely insane, crazy with reading and researching. And I learned how to undo and de-learn and then the dysfunctional stuff and then relearn more functional behaviors. So I didn't have to go through any 12-step program. I'm very blessed, fortunate that I didn't have to. And I'm not dismissing that as a really powerful solution for a lot of people. But when you get to a point where you lose the desire to want to escape, that's a very powerful place to be because I can be in situations, you know, we got married in Las Vegas a year before last and we stayed in, a, in the Virgin Hotel there and surrounded by gambling, free gambling tickets and complimentary alcohol. And now none of that stuff even interests me at all because I've managed to kill the desire for it and found better addictions. That was the context of that healing journey. And I write about it in pretty explicit detail in my book for those that want to pick apart more understanding. It's something that we couldn't talk through on at the time we have to get it together today. But there you go. Yeah, we're going to have that book, Bet on You is the name of it. We're going to have that in the show notes and the link. Uh, listeners, you know, feel free to go there and get that. I am ordering it today. Check out Bet on You in there. And you made the comment when Mary listened to you, you said she listened to you without judgment. And when you say listening without judgment, is that the first time or is that an important part of that journey when the light switched on to have someone listen without judgment? 
Without a doubt, one of the things that I learned about myself coming from the background that I did, once I started to get a few tools and resources, I started helping people that didn't want help. And for those who have done that, you'll realize just how ineffective that is. Yeah. And I had to learn about people inviting me in. And when you get really good at telling your own story from a place of strength, and I would like to think that when people hear me speak, that comes through, especially with my wife as well. She talks about this stuff publicly. She's a writer. She's got a podcast series as well. She gets interviewed on big shows and shares the story. And we haven't even gone into much of the detail of what happened. But that being able to listen without judgment to someone will make you a very powerful resource in all areas of your life. And I can't recommend it more highly, is what I would say. Absolutely. I think that's one of the most important things that as a coach and, and someone who works with high performers, that's been the biggest things is people, when they feel heard and appreciated, they are more apt to open up and start to really dig into their own stuff. And it feels like you embrace that head on and have a look back. You found this new vision, new purpose, not trying to mask or hide or escape. You're just owning it all from that moment forward. And would you say that's a fair description that you have owned it and are accountable for it from that point on, that part of the journey? We are having a little bit of technical difficulty as Laban has left the building, left the room, and comes back in a minute. Hello, mate. Oh, hello, hello. All right, welcome back. <laughs> don't, know, don't know what happened there. That's okay. I was on a show with a, a guy named Gary Wilson, one, one time, and he was telling me the story about how he was going down a ski slope and he lost control. He hit a tree and it literally almost tore him in half. So he lays there on the side of the mountain for a while. And eventually he gets meta back to a hospital where they cut him to a place where literally all that's holding him together is just his spinal cord. And at that exact moment, he lost power on his computer because he didn't have his charger with him. Four minutes later, he comes back with another computer that he had just in case this ever happened, and he completes the story. But, you know, it's no problem. Technology stuff. I'm not sure where we were. I think I was asking you about something rather, but my mind goes 100 miles an hour in every direction, so I forgot. It's okay. So, it's okay. We'll just dive back in. All right, Laban, so thank you for where we are so far in the story. Let's go to something else that really struck me. And ever since uh, I listened to Jim Valvano's speech, the NC State basketball coach, where he was losing the battle to cancer. And he gave the speech and he shared that every day, laugh, every day cry. And I had my cry when I read your story. And it said one thing in there that just hit me instantaneously. It said 19 miscarriages. And back to yours, even saying the word, can you talk a little bit about that chapter in your life so far? I'll just reiterate what I said before as well. I want people to, to please understand that when we share this, this is not for sympathy. This is a really powerful way to get a point across. And if more people were more comfortable sharing from this place, I think the world would be a better place. So don't cry for me, Argentina, as they say. Anna and I, she's the woman that I knew I wanted to meet my entire life and was beginning to think I wouldn't. I was 38. I went through a big, massive physical transformation where I lost a heap of weight and I got into really good shape. I looked like Jason Statham a little bit. And uh, we met Anna and I in the streets of Melbourne in the middle of the day on my way to a meeting one time. And I saw her from about 60 yards away and I was struck mm. by a bolt of lightning, picked up and levitated by a force far greater than me and, and plonked down in front of her. And with the confidence of a thousand Spartan warriors, I said, excuse me, but you are stunning. And I wondered if you have a drink with me one time. And 
And she said, uh, you look good too. <laughs> and nice. we've been together ever since. I was a very promiscuous man in my days prior to that, but Anna made me white. And when we eventually consummated the relationship, she got pregnant. And this was my first ever experience making a baby. And the euphoric excitement soon turned the other way when we learned that it was uh, a miscarriage. And then when we took her into the hospital, it was worse than that. It was an ectopic pregnancy. And for those who don't know really quickly, an ectopic is when it starts forming, when the baby comes together and starts growing in the fallopian tube. And to the best of my knowledge, it's 100% a miscarriage, but it's very dangerous for the mother. And Anna went through two cycles of methotrexate, which is a chemotherapy drug that they give women to stop the cells reproducing because you lose it, right? And, the, and it didn't work. She's just too strong and robust and she hemorrhaged and they misdiagnosed her and she nearly died and nearly lost her in, in January of 2019. We'd only been together for about four months. And that kicked off what has been collectively 19 miscarriages, including three ectopics. And full disclosure, 15 of them have been with me and four were from a previous husband. And But the three ectopics have been with us. So if you get the timeline of the years, we've basically been going one after another pretty much on average. And when Anna told me about the sexual abuse, it all made perfect sense because it was two pregnancies from the abuse and two illegal forced abortions when she was 15 or 16. And one of them damaged her uterine wall. And that was the reason why these babies weren't sticking. So she opened up because of my honesty, we were able to start the healing journey and Anna has become this incredible hypnotherapist and she works with women you know, that have gone through unimaginable stuff because she's so super relatable. The byproduct of her opening up and me having a podcast, I would interview the most brilliant doctors and scientists and people on the planet and ask them for help about how to make this damn baby. You know what I mean? So we are getting to a solution very soon. And she's Anna's only 36. She's in great shape. I'm only 43. I don't mind being an older dad. I've got more energy now than I ever have. And so what we are praying for in whoever you believe in is a positive outcome. And if the universe, for one reason or another, doesn't want us to have kids, at least telling you Honestly, now, Matt, so be it. That may change for me, right? That may change. But right now, so be it. And what a great comeback story if we can make this baby. It's going to be a bigger comeback than Lazarus. Great story. The way that you talk about such challenging topics or things that could be considered challenging topics is very graceful. I appreciate this sharing that. So thank you. And because I just finished my first marathon of my life at 46, not too long ago, two months ago, I want to ask you about your fitness and your ultra marathon. Because one of the things I un unearthed in, in doing the background check is that you have competed in ultra marathons and you've done it while you were injured. So can you talk a little bit about your passion or interest in this <laughs> and how in the heck do you do it? Laban, I did my first marathon and I was injured by mile 17 and in an immense pain and I only had nine more miles to go. So I can only imagine the next 40 or the next 80 miles. So please take us through your ultra marathon journey. I'd love to hear about that. Well, Matt, what I would say is congratulations. It's less than 1% of the, the population will ever run a marathon. That's an amazing effort. And it might have sparked something in you to continue 
doing these and pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. What happened to me is pretty unheard of to the best of my knowledge. And I've asked as many people as I can to try and see if other people have experienced this. But in May 2018, Matt, I had a very powerful healing forgiveness breakthrough session with my mum and I had a very dysfunctional relationship for many years until I got to the point where I realized that they were doing the best they could and that I needed to just be grateful for the wonderful stuff that I did get and forgive and love them, which is where I'm at now, thankfully. The next day after this big forgiveness thing, in conjunction with losing a bunch of weight, I lost 60 pounds of, of body fat and put on 30 pounds of muscle over about two years, just for context. And I'm okay. about five foot eight and a half. I ran 26 kilometers the next day, which I think is about 18 miles, just on black coffee. And I got home and I was like, I only stopped because I was hungry. And I came home, did 100 push-ups, 100 sit-ups, and 100 pull-ups over a few different sets. And I was like, I'm going to run a marathon. So I looked online and, and looked up next available marathon, which was in two weeks. And it was the Terrelgan Marathon, which is considered the most boring, flat marathon in Australia. It's the oldest okay. marathon in Australia as well. And I coaxed a friend of mine, Sammy Skinner, to run it with me. And I ran it in three hours, 56, 47 seconds. And I was like, I want more. So I signed up for the Surf Coast Century, which is a 60-mile trail run in the beautiful southern part of Victoria in Australia where I was living. And from when I first ran the marathon, eight weeks after that, I ran a 30-miler. Eight weeks after that is when I completed the 60-mile. And at the very beginning of the race, I was showing off because I've always been a show-off and, you know, you can't take that out of me completely. I did a karate kick. And with the benefit of hindsight, I probably should have warmed up before I did it because it must have pulled something very small. When I got to the halfway mark, which I ran in about seven hours and 15 minutes, which was a pretty good time, 22 kilometers on the beach, whatever that works out to be in miles, 15, 16 miles, 2,200 meters, so six and a half thousand, 7,000 feet of up and down as well. I sat down at the halfway checkpoint to refuel and I couldn't get up. And I'd hurt my iliotibial band, my IT band for any runners out there. They'll know what I'm talking about. But it's this incredible pain that starts in your hip and emanates also through the outside of your knee. And I limped the last 50 kilometers (laughs) because I'll be damned if I wasn't going to finish this thing. And I will proudly say that I reckon, and I'm going to ruffle a few feathers here, I reckon, Matt, that pain was worse than childbirth. (laughs) <laughs> I really do. and But I finished it under the most challenging circumstances. And the, the beautiful outcome was that I destroyed these this glass ceiling of what I thought was now possible. And it's rippled out into all areas of my life. And for that, just I'd never change anything. The controversial statement that this might be as painful as childbirth. I'm curious if that was your experience. I totally honor that because mine was pretty painful too. I am curious how long did that pain last? Was it the entire last 50 kilometers? Was it the last three or four or five hours? How long did that exact pain, that excruciating pain last? From memory, it really was once I got up. I know there would have been soreness because the longest run that I'd done to prepare for that was only half the distance. It was only 50Ks. I was doing 50Ks more than my body was used to, but you get sore. The pain really was excruciating. And to give you an idea, it took me 18 hours and 55 minutes and 47 seconds to complete. And I didn't know anything about electrolytes either. And it was the coldest run on record. So we had below wind chill, minus one or two degrees Celsius, wind chill, freezing cold, just could not get warm because I didn't have enough salt in my body. And it was just an absolute, I was going to swear, but I won't. 
it was not a great scenario, but I did it. And we raised a bunch of money and I've run a couple more since. And I did attempt one a month later and I got medically withdrawn at the 41 kilometer mark by an 80 year old orthopedic surgeon who just shook his head and said, mate, what are you doing? So talk about the mental state that you had to maintain or be present in for that last 50 kilometers, that last 18 hours. How did you do that, Laban? I made a commitment to myself at some point that no matter what happened, I would finish this race. And I have to give almost all of the credit to my running buddy, a friend, a really dear friend of mine, Sam Skinner, who's an Australian guy, played cricket with him for a long time together. And he waited with me and he got incredibly cold as well because he would run and then have to wait. And my per kilometer pace, it was taking me like 40 minutes to do a kilometer at some point like ridiculous numbers. They do have cutoff times as well. So you have to finish. I think I got maybe an hour before the cutoff. I need to check that, but it was something along those lines. So Sam's on that occasion waited with me and just motivated me and encouraged me. I was ready to give up more times than I can remember. Man, you made a commitment to yourself and you had a partner with you there to do it. Awesome. Laban, I feel like there's so much buried beneath the surface here that we could just stay on all these challenges. And I'd love to stay there. And at the same time, I'd love to let the world experience a little bit of what you're putting out there. Like, where is your vision taking you now that the world might be able to follow and learn with you? So the time of year, this is really quite fascinating. I mean, I had I met a guy here who's become a coach of mine who's a spiritual coach, and he's got me meditating pretty much every single day, which is something I never have really done because running used to be my meditation. It wasn't until I really just sat with myself that I realized how much more effective it could be, right? And I've had this thought for a long time, off and on, for a number of reasons, about totally burning down my social media. And so I finally went ahead with that a few days ago. I deleted a 17-year Facebook account, two Instagram accounts, TikTok tried to delete LinkedIn, but it won't let me. So I'm taking that as a sign from the universe. Maybe I should keep a hold of that. But the point around it was I wanted the time to really be with myself, to relaunch on into the world in a manner that is so good that they can't ignore me. Because I've already gone through a major transformation, some of which I've shared with you today. But there's parts of me in the current version of me that are unhappy or dissatisfied with who I know I can be. And I was getting distracted. I was doom scrolling and I, it was preventing me from actually doing, taking action. And in the time that I had these thoughts, I'm going to do this with some encouragement from my wife, Anna, like I did it. And immediately within a few days, I came up with this epiphanous moment. I'm going to share this with the audience today. This is an exclusive, Matt, because I could choose to shut up about it because it's in such its infancy. But what I'm working on right now and amongst the other stuff that I've been doing, and I haven't settled on the name, but it's either the Honesty Project or Honesty Policy. And what I want to create is a movement in the world that shows people the power of what happens when you tell the truth and the flow-on effect that has into society. Because I think more than ever, people are just craving someone to just be truthful. I've just started writing the book on this as well, and I don't know what it's going to look like exactly, but that is something that has really resonated with me. Because my whole philosophy has always been, I just want to know the truth so I can make an informed decision. I think everyone's like that, who's consciously and spiritually a little bit awake. And wouldn't it be great? The example I started writing about was Bill Clinton's speech, the famous one about Monica Lewinsky. What if he said, I did have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I lied and I'm sorry. Imagine if he did that. What kind of flow on effect to the rest of society? 
now as a result of now, I know he came clean about it years later. I don't want to get too political, but Epstein's list is about to be announced at the time of this recording. Whether Bill Clinton had nothing to do with the 25 trips to the island, there will always be doubt no matter what he says because of the consequence of his actions. And because of my honesty, my wife opened up to me about her stuff and she's been able to share her story and thousands, maybe millions of women have benefited from that honesty. So that's the angle in addition to the other stuff that's going on. I absolutely love it. Support it. Whatever it comes out, come back on the show. I want to be a microphone to help this message of speaking the truth transparently, or to use Dalio, radically transparent, that we share it authentically and truthfully. I love it. I love it. How do you go into writing sessions or brainstorming sessions to come up with the things you're going to be in this project, Laban? When I realized I had a, a knack for writing, I... I brought Les Brown onto my podcast uh, when I had eight episodes and I was famous for cold calling people and I cold called Les Brown and, and asked him to come on the show and he did. Now, he never asked me how many subscribers I had, which was only 10 at the time, but I would have told him, but he didn't, so I didn't. And he came on and I said, hey, Les, what do you think of the name of the podcast? Become Your Own Superhero Podcast. And if for anyone that knows Les Brown, who's heard him speak, he absolutely humbled me with just how beautifully he spoke about the show. And I was so endeared by how he responded that I instinctively just verbally diarrheaed my story of transformation to him. And he listened with the patience of a saint. Let me finish and then said, congratulations, Logan. I said, thanks, Les. He goes, do you have a book? And I go, no, I don't. He goes, if you're going to be a speaker, you need a book to help with your credibility. And I know this is something that's close to your heart, to the best of my knowledge as well, Matt. Talk about this in a second, right? Mark J, there you go. Glad I asked. He said, who was the most influential person in your life when you were five years of age? And I thought about it for a minute. Never been asked this question before, let alone thought about it. I was like, man, despite her many flaws, it would be my mum. He goes, well, what attributes did you get from your mother? And I was like, she was unconditionally loving and spiritual and tenacious. And he's writing all this stuff down, Matt. He looks up at me and he goes, Laban, this is a God moment. I'm going to show you how to monetize your purpose. And for the next 10 minutes, he reads back to me the blueprint for this book that he wants me to write called Bet On You. He said, Laban, you're going to write the book, turn the book into a keynote speech. You're going to turn that keynote into a three-day retreat. And even if you stuff this up, you're going to make six figures in the next 12 months. And I'm going to interview you on my social media platform with 4 million followers. And I'm going to write the forward to your book. This is wow. in mid-May 2020, wow. right? Middle of lockdown. Okay. And in a moment of complete and utter insanity, I said, Les, if you're going to write the forward to my book, I'll have it to you by June 30. So in six weeks during May and June of 2020, I pumped out 33,000 words of bet on you, first draft, delivered it to his inbox as promised. So to answer your question in a very long-winded way, Matt, that was a divine download. And I think my intuition is that once you are aligned with something that really deeply resonates, I think that's when the channel opens up. Like I said, I never finished school. I never went to college. I've never written anything of any significance prior to that. And proof is in the pudding, but the feedback I've had from the book has been extraordinary. And that was absolutely a gift from the universe. So write about something that you really align with and see what the difference is. A beautiful story. Thank you. What was Les Brown like when you cold called him? What was his first reaction when you get him on the phone? Overwhelmingly positive. He picked up the phone and he said, oh, Les speaking. And I said, Les Brown? He said, yes, it is. I said, Les Brown, it's Labor Ditchburn from Melbourne, Australia. He said, how can I help you, boy? And I said, Les, 
I'm a huge fan of you and your work, and I'm the host of an incredible podcast series called Become Your Own Superhero, and I'll be honored if you came on and shared your amazing story with our audience. When are you available? And he said, when are you thinking, boy? And I said, to be honest, Les, whenever you're available, probably works with me. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, fantastic. This is interesting. Maybe it's fortuitous. The universe is just sharing something because within the past couple of weeks, I've gotten a referral to Les Brown to reach out to him and potentially get him on our show. So this is very interesting that uh, you're talking about him. Matt, if you ring him and and don't text him or email him because he gets inundated with those, if you ring him and you tell him that you are my friend and you can say that, I can guarantee you he'll come on the show barring any extenuating circumstances. Fantastic. And I was not warned. I was coached. Yes, don't email him, call him. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he, we had dinner at his home in Atlanta the year before last. We, hmm. We've developed a really great friendship off the back of that experience and what I've been able to connect him with and a bunch of other things. So this is what's possible, folks, when you become fearless and become the world's best courage coach. Fantastic. Yeah. Can you talk about that? I saw that accolade online, the world's best courage coach. What does that mean? How did you get that accolade, Laban? It's a declaration to the universe about how I want to show up in the world. And you you would know very well, Matt, as an entrepreneur, when people say, I meet you for the first time, hey, what do you do? And you're like, ah, speaker, coach, author, podcaster, whatever it is. And I had a powerful experience with a guy by the name of Steve Hardison in 2021, who's known as the ultimate coach. And the story We'll run out of time if I retell this today, but basically the experience led to this declaration of taking ownership of being the world's best courage coach. And the declaration is very powerful because it gives people that aren't in the entrepreneurial world clarity very quickly about what you do. So when people meet me and they say, hey, Lab, nice to meet you. What do you do? I say, I'm the world's best courage coach. And they go, wow, what does that look like? And I, I teach people how to take bold, massive, and courageous action so that they can facilitate their own miraculous outcomes. And I do that through my speaking, my coaching, my uh, podcast, my book, and my masterminds that I run. And then people that are entrepreneurs immediately, oh, I get it, and elicits further questions, which many of which lead to business opportunities because they don't feel like an idiot asking you a question. But more importantly, when I wake up, I made this declaration, asked myself, how would the world's best courage coach conduct himself? And that has created this perpetual forward motion in allowing me to not rest on my laurels because you can't make a declaration like that unless you take full ownership of it. Otherwise, it's out of alignment and it's out of integrity. So the declaration has to be a non-quantifiable and intangible statement because if I said I'm the world's best coach, that I'd look like an idiot because there's measures to be able to actually justify that in competitions and stuff. But if you're thinking about your own world's best statement, think about what it is that you're doing in the world and who you're helping. And so for me, it's alleviating, helping people alleviate fear and see possibility. What's the positive opposite of that? Courage, right? World's best courage coach. And until there's a a conference in Las Vegas, Nevada for a world's best courage coach official title, No one can take that away from me. And it's now being affirmed by other people when I get interviewed on other shows and Les introduced me as the world's best courage coach and Brad Lee from Dropping Bombs introduced me as the world's best courage coach. So now it's being reaffirmed back to me. So now I have to act in integrity. And that's been a very powerful resource for me. Again, speechless, I'm left here, just hearing these amazing stories and the way you're showing up. And from now on, (laughs) I will know you as the world's best courage coach. 
So I'm going to give you that de- that declaration as well. That tie, I love it. I love it. Thank you. So team, today, listeners, we have the world's best courage coach on the line here sharing his soul with us. So let's keep moving. I want to read something to you that I found on your LinkedIn page that you tried to delete. Maybe the world is telling us something. This is the part that really stuck with me coming into our discussion today. My mission is I'm dedicated to empowering individuals to realize their potential. I strive to inspire change and encourage others to bet on themselves. And that really resonated with me, that and the picture of you and your wife together. And Can you talk a little bit about your mastermind? I'd love to hear more about that today, Laban. I've got two masterminds that I run. One of them is called Podcasting Heroes. And that came from some really great advice I got from people saying, why don't you teach people how to do what you did? Because Les was one of, I've done 200 and something podcast interviews, most of them are pretty well-known or very well-known people. And it wasn't just because I was trying to get big names on there. It's just exciting to be around people like that, develop friendships. And then I was creating really positive experiences for them as guests because I researched the heck out of them and I'm there to serve as well. What value can I add this person's life? And then they would start inviting me into onto their platforms and into their circles of influence. And that was a really great way for me to leverage other people's audiences. So I created a group for entrepreneurs who have a podcast that want to really just level up. And then the other mastermind is really a group coaching program. I got some really great advice from a guy, Myron Golden, who's a very high-level successful entrepreneur connected with Russell Brunson and some of these guys. And he's like, why don't you coach people in a group coaching environment so that you're not in an echo chamber? And I still enjoy some one-on-one stuff, but it seems to be a much more impactful community of people. So that's more the courage coaching. That's still high-end, high-ticket stuff. So it's for a particular level of person. And then for everyone else that wants all the, the beginner stuff, they can enjoy all the interviews and hearing from people who have already done it. I really try to make a point of not taking advice from people that haven't done what I want to do. And why should they take advice from me when I haven't achieved that particular thing either? So I focus on what I have done. And I think that's why when you start putting yourself out there physically and you start doing some ultras and having the book out and talking about things like in the way that I do, it's a very powerful example that you're setting. And you want to be in integrity. You want to be credible. You don't want to be do as I say, not as I do kind of thing. But I ain't perfect at it, Matt, but I'm getting better and better. Oh, absolutely. Uh, are you getting ready to take off this, uh, this nice jacket and shirt you have and go run here in a little while? Because you look, you're ready to rock. You look like you're, you're ready to take <laughs> on anything that's coming at you next. Is your exercise coming up next? I will hit the gym. I just started skipping and I managed to do about 25 minutes yesterday. I'm carrying a little bit more body fat than I would have liked. This is part of my relaunch and running's not the best thing for losing weight, just FYI, but skipping and strength training is. So I love the mental clarity because I'm a low carb runner as well. I typically eat a pretty low carb Mm -hmm. diet. And for anyone that gets a chance to read the book and you'll hear me talk about the euphoric high that I was experiencing not a typical runner's high, far more impactful, probably closer to ecstasy, if I'm honest, at the wow. drug. So one of the runs I did in, in July 2021 was a zero sugar 50K. So I had a ribeye steak for breakfast, okay. about half a gallon of homemade bone broth that had spleen and liver cooked into it and about nine slices of Yelsberg cheese. And I did it. I did it. It was like a biohack thing. People would say that you can't do it, but I did it. What else is, what's next? Love it. 
Yes. And I would love to go deep down the granular rabbit hole of everything you just shared about biohacking, because that's a passion of mine too. And for the sake of time today, I'd like to come back to, since you've deleted all the social media stuff at this time, except for LinkedIn, our guests know they can find you on LinkedIn at this time. Is there any (laughs) place that we should go to find you now or to learn more about you now, Laban? If you put Laban Ditchburn into a search bar of your favorite browser, there is only one of me, to the best of my knowledge. You can't, if you really want to find me, you can find me. If you really want to connect with me, that's my challenge to you, connect with me. But all the links are all through the website, through labanditchburn.com. The book's on Amazon. It's in my voice if you want to listen to it on Audible. There's a few accents in there as well that I do. And yeah, if you resonate with me, you'll resonate with me. And if you don't, you won't. Fair. And as someone whose first book is coming out in March, I'm curious, when you did the reading for your book, because I've heard that's a very arduous and challenging process, don't do it. But I'm resilient as heck. I want to do it in my own voice. I'm curious what that experience was like for you, for reading your own book. First things first, if you don't read your book, you will lose credibility in my eyes. All right. I know that's a manipulative technique, but I'm going to encourage you to read it because only you can read it and do it justice in the way that you wrote it. And congrats on the book, by the way. I'm very happy for you. Big moment in your life. The context of how I recorded the book, when I was in Germany at the book fair, I was on a phone call with a friend of mine, Alan Thompson in Australia, and I just happened to ask him, hey, do you happen to know anyone or any studios in Germany? And he yells out on that phone call to a friend who's staying with him, says, hey, do you know any recording studios in Germany? And this lady goes, yeah, you need to connect with Eric and Beverly Wittenberg in Charlottenburg in Berlin. Eric Wittenberg is the number one vocal talent in Germany. Like when Elton John did his autobiography, Eric did it in German. He was the voice. And he had a studio in his home. And we recorded it over three and a bit days. Four-hour days, five-hour days. And it was one of the most cool experiences ever. So it's been professionally put together by one of the best in the business. And I'm really up to you, but I really would encourage you to put it in your own voice as well. Oh, 100%. I'm going to do it either way. And I'm so glad to hear. One of the cool things that I'm, I'm realizing about you is that as you're speaking, I'm not hearing any blaming or any complaining. All I'm hearing is gratitude and living in the moment and being present for the experience. And I'm fascinated that you're able to live that way. And you've not been a big meditator, right? You've not had that type of practice. I think you did <laughs> practice that on the run when you're running, but not having a meditation practice. It's just so amazing to see someone who's so present. That's pretty cool. How'd you get that way? Yeah. <laughs> I read a book called The Go-Giver, which you've probably heard of. Yeah. John David Mann and Bob Berg, right? And both of whom have been guests on the show. And that kind of kicked off this whole value can aid these people's lives. And then I eventually had Jack Canfield on the podcast. And he was telling a story about having a swear jar at home. But instead of putting money in for profanity, he put money in for negative self-talk. And I'd been exploring some of this stuff for a while because I knew about the power of words and language that we use. And so I've implemented that. This is nearly three years ago now that I learned about this. So I implemented it in my own life. And so now it's very rare or seldom that you will ever hear me use negative self-talk about myself. And it's not because I'm delusional. It's because I just choose to reframe the language. The beauty of it is, Matt, is that once you do it for a month, it becomes a habit. And then here's the real power of it that I noticed. You start noticing how all these other people around you are talking. 
and you can make a decision. And I've gotten very ruthless at setting boundaries in my life. I refuse to be around people that continually speak about that by them, to themselves. So then I start to magnetize and attract through quantum magic people that resonate with that language. And so I'm attracting more and more high caliber people into my life. And we all know the benefit of that. Absolutely. And I'm so glad I talked to you today, Laban. This has been a real gift. I'd like to start to move to our wrap-up section, the lightning round thing you made it. So, dear listeners, this has been a treasure trove of, of great wisdom today. Let's wrap it up with a couple more things. Laban. Before you do that, Matt, I hope you don't mind me interrupting. This is the first time you've ever listened to this or you're a regular listener of the show, watcher of the show. Matt is doing incredible work. You can't possibly imagine the amount of work that goes into creating something which largely doesn't generate money directly for a very long time. Go out of your way if you continue to support what Matt's doing and review and rate and share this with people that you care about because the man is doing God's work. That's my two cents. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that, man. I love you, man. Thank you. That was awesome. I love you too, man. (laughs) Awesome. I'm totally comfortable saying I love you nowadays. I'm totally comfortable sharing emotion and being emotional where these are things that I before I did the work and had that awakening, as you might call it, uh, I, I kept it all inside. And I think we have a lot of things in common that you may have shared earlier that I'm glad we're in this space now. And it took work to get here. And I'm curious in terms of books, we, we know Bet On You is your book and we can get that out there. I'm curious if there might be one or two other books out there that you've read that you would recommend to our audience, Laban. I hope the audience is ready. I'm going to recommend (laughs) one book, and it's written by a lady, Pia Melody, and it's called Facing Codependence. And I will warn you now that depending on your journey, it is, for me, it was one of the most challenging books to read because when I read it, Matt, I saw so much of my behaviors in what basically were pure examples of codependent behavior. And so it was very confronting and it forced me to completely uh, shift how I was showing up in the world and how I treated myself. However, it was one of the most powerful healing books for me because it gave me the tools and resources that I needed to heal. And that's available on Amazon, Facing Codependence by P. Melody. Unbelievable book. Thank you. That's the first time I've heard this book in our show in 145 episodes. So thank you for sharing that, Facing Codependence. Next music. I don't know if you're a musical man, but if there is a music that inspires you, a genre, an artist, oh, it is, then what music lights you up and, and fills your bucket, Laban? Oh, man, I'm a big Strokes fan. Really, this music I keep going back to time and time again. I don't know if anyone out there, they're out of New York, big in the early, late 90s, early 2000s. And I had a moment last year where I've been in conversation with his manager and trying my damnedest to get Julian Casablancas, the lead singer on my show. And I don't know whether it's going to happen, but he's about the only person that would make me nervous. You could put me in a room with anyone and I wouldn't be overwhelmed, but he might make me a little bit giddy. Oh, man. You're hitting me here because I had a dream on my dreams list that when we have our prom, my wife and I are going to have a prom when I turn 50, invite all of our friends around the world to come to it. And I was going to have Meatloaf come and perform his famous song, I Do Anything for Love, but I won't do that. And then he unfortunately passed away last year, 2022, (laughs) and we can't have Meatloaf anymore. But I love that you're chasing down this dream to get your lead singer to come. Is he going to come perform? Is it a big secret trying to get him to perform? 
the way my approach to all these things is if it's supposed to happen, it'll happen. I'm not tied to any outcome. Let me ask you this though, Matt, who do you want to perform now that Meatloaf's dead? First thing that comes to mind, oh shoot, Jimmy Buffett just came to mind. Man, I'm thinking about people that passed away. Yeah, I've got a friend. His name is Jeremy Rysick. He goes by uh, Hobbs, Jay Hobbs. He used to be go by Brother James, but he sings inspirational, positive music, and I'd love to have him come and perform. So that's going to be the person. Let's have a conversation after the recording. I'll see whether I can help be a part of that, if you like. Yeah, love to. Thank you. Thank you. And last question. The name of our show is the Eternal Optimist Podcast. When I say the words Eternal Optimist, what does that mean to you, Laban? It's a healthy delusion of just what you can create in the world. And maybe that's oxymoronic using that language, but I like it. It's not unhealthy. I think it's very healthy. I think operating from a place of assuming things are going to play out positively in the end is a very powerful way to live your life and a great way to show up in the world because most people operate from the opposite. So you will stick out like a sore thumb in the best way possible. Mr. Laban Ditchburn, thank you for joining us today and blessing us with your presence. We love you and appreciate you, brother. Thanks a lot. Congo still senior.